Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. As a teacher at the New York School of Art in the early 20th century, Robert Henry urged his students to reject genteel subjects in favor of gritty depictions of urban life. George Bellows, Edward Hopper, and John Sloan typify the range of personalities and artistic styles in Henry's first crop of students. Alfred Stieglitz, Henry's contemporary, is best known as an early promoter and practitioner of photography as a fine art. He was also a champion of modern painting and sculpture. From 1908 to 1917, his gallery, 291, named for its address on Fifth Avenue, introduced New York audiences to new European art movements and new American artists. Stieglitz's promotion of photography had two opposing effects on painting. Arthur Dove, Marston Hartley, John Maron, and others felt liberated by photography's realism, which allowed them to invent bold styles of painterly abstraction. Precisionists, such as Charles Scheeler by contrast, began to emulate the sharp detail of photography and to take photographs themselves. As part of the series Celebrating the East Building, 20th Century Art, senior lecturer David Gariff explores the contributions made to modern American art by Henry Stieglitz, their students, and followers. This lecture was presented on July 17, 2018, at the National Gallery of Art. This is a series that focuses on the permanent collection and pretty much takes you through the way you would go if you really had the time and the interest to, to move through the collection the way we have now installed it. So once you enter this space here, you can see already looking in, this is a painting by George Bellows. And then back here, you're looking at some paintings from the Stiglitz School. But the first room you enter is this room. Um, <clears throat> which is about Robert Henry and his students. So uh, here's the wall plaque uh, here, and here's the uh, Henry painting that we have, Snow in New York from 1902. So what you will find in the um, first gallery of this uh, American um, gallery um, are the works of Robert Henry and the, his circle, and in our case, that includes uh, Edward Hopper, John Sloan, and George Bellows. So they're all in this room with Robert Henry, and they were all students of Robert uh, Henry. Now, this room is the room that, um, in many ways, these paintings took the longest journey because almost everything, well, not almost, everything that's in this first room here used to be in the West Building. But when we reopened the East Building, we decided that again these would be a good trend, these would be good transitional paintings to introduce modernism in America. So uh, we moved them from the West Building to the East Building, where they're they're housed now. So we're going to talk a little bit about Henry and look at some of the paintings that are here. When you go beyond the Henry and his uh, students uh, room, you'll go into a room devoted to Alfred Stiglitz and his circle. And then if you were to go deeper still, the third space is now what we have as a rotating gallery. It's devoted to works on paper. So it's constantly changing because of their sensitivity to light. So it's mainly prints, drawings, and photographs, but the, the theme rotates. So every time you come after so many months, 
it'll be a different exhibition. So here's Robert Henry, a photograph from 1905 <clears throat> on the left and a, and a photograph around 1897 on the right. Uh, those of you who've heard me lecture before uh, on various topics uh, have heard me say frequently that <clears throat> when we look at the history of American art, there are three pivotal artist teachers. Uh, and these were painters who uh, were as important as teachers as they were as painters. Um, and they kind of span three centuries. So if we were talking in the 18th century, we'd be talking about Benjamin West. So Benjamin West was the premier sort of teacher and um, mentor to a whole host of colonial painters, especially when they came to London, where he was in residence. And he served to um, facilitate their careers. He was their teacher, but he was also their sort of supporter. So without Benjamin West, the whole generation of colonial painters would not have had the careers that they had. If we go to the end of the 19th century into the early 20th century, it would be Henry. Uh, Henry's impact as a teacher is, um, it's hard to, to again, um, overestimate. It's, it's, it's very important in the history of American painting. And when you start to go through, again, the list of students who come out of his studio, uh, I just mentioned three of them, uh, John Sloan, George Bellows, Edward Hopper, but there are others, you can see the impact that he had. And then if we were to carry this into the 20th century, and we'll talk about this later uh, in this kind of tour, it would be Hans Hoffmann. So in the 20th century, the uh, German emigre Hans Hoffmann, who sets up school and sets up shop in New York in the 40s, 30s and 40s, almost every important American abstract expressionist goes through Hans Hoffman's school. So, or at least they have contact with Hoffman. So Jackson Pollock, Franz Klein, Willem de Kooning, uh, that whole generation of painters. So Benjamin West, Robert Henry, and um, uh, who did I leave? Hans Hoffman. <laughs> uh, these are the three great, uh, at least in my estimation, uh, three of the greatest artist teachers in American art history. So Henry was born in Cincinnati. Um, he studied at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts in Philadelphia. Uh, he goes off to Paris. He studies with a very important uh, French academic painter who also actually Matisse studied with until he decided he had enough of that guy. And that was uh, Bouguereau. I uh, remember I mentioned Matisse when we were in talking about the other gallery. He starts with Bouguereau, but then he shifts to Moreau, Gustave Moreau. Um, Henry starts with Bouguereau and stays with Bouguereau. He travels extensively throughout Europe at this time. And of course, he goes to all the major museums and the artist that he's most um, smitten with uh, is Diego Velazquez. So when he travels to France, he travels to Spain, goes to the Prado. And when he sees Velazquez's paintings, of course, he thinks this is, this is where I should be, this is the guy. And as you probably know, especially if you're a painter, um, very often when you ask painters, living artists, who is the greatest painter in the history of art? They don't even pause, uh, and they say Velazquez. Um, so that's how highly regarded Velazquez is among artists in his own day and up to the present day. So what he loves about Velazquez is the kind of slashing brushwork, this incredible, um, beautiful way of uh, sort of seizing the moment and 
painting with a heavy impasto, but with a very, very active um, use of, of color and uh, brushwork. Uh, he comes back to America and decides that American painting, American art at that point in time has been sort of laboring under the weight of tradition, um, a, a rather conservative tradition. So um, he goes to the National Academy of Design and becomes, he becomes a professor at the National Academy of Design, a teacher. His great colleague is William Merritt Chase, and they really represent two different ways of thinking. And what uh, Henry is more interested in than Chase uh, is painting that reflects the real world. So the realism of, of where we are, he's in New York, so that artist should embrace realism. And of course, the artists, again, that uh, he had looked at, uh, in addition to Velazquez, were artists, certainly more recent artists like Manet, Gustave Courbet. These were all artists that Henry had a great affection for. So as a teacher, this is what he advocated to his students. Paint the here and the now. Paint the city around you. Don't be afraid. Don't idealize it. Don't purify it. Paint it in its dirt, its grit, and all of that. And of course, his students took that pretty much to heart. He organizes a very famous exhibition called The Eight. It was a controversial exhibition that included many of these artists that had now been inculcated with this idea of painting reality. They came to be known as the Ashcan School. So the eight and the Ashcan School can be synonymous terms. And of course, the reason they were dubbed by the critics the Ashcan School is because it looked like they were painting garbage and detritus from the alleys of New York. Um, and they were looking at subject matter that many critics didn't feel was appropriate. It wasn't idealized. It wasn't uh, based on Greek and Roman precedents, et cetera. So that name kind of, uh, kind of stuck. So here is Henry's um, painting on the left, <clears throat> which is at Yale. Um, this is street scene with snow, 57th Street, New York City. It's the subtitle, 1902. And then our painting that I showed you a while ago, hanging up next to the wall text, snow in New York from 1902. So you see in both of these cases this kind of loose, rapid, slashing kind of application of paint. Um, very much, very little underdrawing. Most of what he's creating here is, is created with the brush uh, rather than being sketched in uh, beforehand. There certainly are references in some of the brushwork to the Impressionists. He certainly became aware, especially of Camille Pizarro when he was in, um, uh, in France. Um, but um, the palette is murky, it's dark, it's um, strong contrasts of light and dark that relate more to the old masters like Velazquez or Rembrandt, people in that, especially in the 17th century. They're both urban scenes. So they're both snow scenes in New York City. And this isn't the nice, beautiful, fresh layer of snow where everybody loves winter and goes out. Uh, <clears throat> this is the dirty, murky snow after it's been trodden and carts have gone by and it's now looking pretty, pretty grim. Um, but again, it has a great uh, sense of the city and of, 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 the, of reality. There's nothing, though, narrative about it. Neither painting is a narrative. It's not anecdotal. He's not telling a story. It's not a scene from something. It's just the city. Here you go in, with dirty snow, <laughs> basically. Um, he, had, he kept a, 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 what he called a record book, it's kind of a journal, 
about all of his paintings. And, and for the painting, um, uh, for our painting, the one on the right, he, he recorded in his record book, uh, quote, so you, and it's, it's really kind of deadpan. He says, quote, um, New York, down east on 55th Street from 6th Avenue, brown houses at 5th Avenue, storm effect, snow, wagon to the right. A poet he was not. Uh, <laughs> uh, so he just gives you, and that's typical Ashcan sort of school, here are the facts, and that's that. Uh, you like it, you don't like it, uh, etc. Um, but they're wonderful paintings. Uh, and again, these, these paintings particularly suffer, I think, in reproduction, because you don't see the subtlety of the brushwork, the light effects. So here's the catalog for the exhibition that uh, Henry organized in February of 1908. It took place at the Macbeth Gallery in New York. The so-called exhibition of the eight or the Ashcan School catalog included a list here of the artists who were in the show. Davies, Glackens, Henry, Lawson, Lux, Prendergast, Shin, and Sloan uh, here. Somebody who was not in the show, as you probably noticed, was George Bellows. Edward Hopper was not in the show. Um, and um, this became a landmark exhibition in the history of American uh, painting, these eight painters displaying their works together. Uh, it was essentially organized as a protest in many ways, even though Henry taught at the National Academy. Uh, he, he was actually, and these artists were essentially protesting the rather conservative traditional academic training at the Academy and were trying to sort of shake things up, you might say, very similar to things that had gone on in Europe. The show traveled to several cities, so it didn't stay in New York. It went to uh, Newark, to Chicago. It went, I think, no far, farther west than Chicago. Um, and it prompted new ideas about what should be, what painting should be, what subject matter should be. This is a photograph on the right that shows Everett Shin, Robert Henry, and John Sloan. So this is Henry up here, John Sloan, Shin, uh, here from 1896. Uh, Henry is one of the uh, one of our country's great great teachers. So um, you constantly see him with his students and with his class. Not unlike that photograph I showed you of Moreau's studio, remember, with Matisse and Rouault. Uh, so these are different classes. This is Henry on the left, his, one of his classes from 1905. Um, Henry is seated right here. Uh, you can see him in the foreground. And second from the left, uh, standing second from, let's see, where is it? Uh, this guy here, is that right? Let me see. Uh, yeah, that's him. That's Rockwell Kent who was another student of, um, of Henry's. Uh, the photograph on the right is the Art Students League in New York, where he taught also from 1916. Henry's down here somewhere. I can't see from here. There he is. Um, so as a teacher, he's incredibly important. Uh, his students list as a kind of who's who in American painting um, as we go along. And then if that weren't enough, in terms of his legacy as an educator, uh, he writes one of the great books uh, of American art history that we all have to read when you're in graduate school. Uh, it's called The Art Spirit, which comes out in 1923. This is a magnificent book. It's uh, a book in which uh, Henry essentially lays out his beliefs, theories about what painting should be, how an artist should exist. 
Uh, it sort of embodies all of his theories of teaching. Uh, so it's a teaching manual. It has technical advice about how to actually literally do things, how to mix paints and do certain, uh, certain things. It would give his students, it gave his students like, like a, essentially a compendium of his whole curriculum and belief system that they could carry uh, with them. And it was also a book that was very inspirational. Uh, so it was written not just for artists or students, but it, it's one of the major texts in American art and aesthetics because it's very inspirational. It talks about art in a more philosophical um, fashion. So this became, this is a classic text in American uh, art history. Um, I've got an excerpt here. So here is an excerpt. Uh, I, it's beautifully written. Henry, could, he wrote beautifully and very sensitively. So here he says, there are moments in our lives, there are moments in a day when we seem to see beyond the usual, become clairvoyant. We reach then into reality. Such are the moments of our greatest happiness. Such are the moments of our greatest wisdom. It is in the nature of all people to have these experiences, but in our time and under the conditions of our lives, it is only a rare few who are able to continue in the experience and find expression for it. So he's talking about artists. We all have these experiences, but only a few of us, only those of us who are artists, he's saying, can sort of stay in that experience and then kind of express it. So that gives you a sense of his uh, writing style. He was a much beloved uh, teacher. So when you come into our uh, American gallery now on the ground floor, the first room is devoted to Henry with that one painting that I just showed you. And then on one entire wall is George Bellows. So this is Blue Morning, this is New York City, and uh, the lone tenement here, 1909, 1911, and 19.9. On the other wall, we have Bellows uh, in the center, um, the 42 kids that we recently acquired from the uh, Corcoran, so this is 1907. Two Hopper paintings, Groundswell and Cape Cod Evening, both from 1939. Uh, what's on the corner back over here that I'm not showing you, uh, is, a, a, but I will show it to you in a few minutes, is a painting by John Sloan. So we have Sloan, Bellows, and Hopper and Henry all together as the um, sort of the uh, school of, uh, of Henry. So here's Bellows. Uh, Bellows was the closest student to, to Henry. Uh, if you came to the last lecture, we talked about the relationship between Ruault and um, Moreau, and that was almost like a father-son relationship. That's the way this was between Henry and Bellows. Uh, Henry always asserted that Bellows was his greatest student. He was the student he was the proudest of. They had a very close relationship, um, essentially, again, sort of like a father-son relationship. So this is Bellows, a photograph of Bellows in 1900. This is Robert Henry's portrait of Bellows from 1911. It's not a work you see very often because it's housed in the National Academy of Design, the school where he taught. It's still there. Uh, Bellows was raised in Columbus, Ohio, born and raised in Columbus. They had this Ohio thing. Henry was from Cincinnati. Bellows was from um, Columbus. 
He was a great uh, athlete in college, played basketball and baseball. Uh, he showed incredible skill at drawing. He did all the illustrations for the Ohio State uh, yearbook. Uh, he was very much encouraged to pursue a career in professional baseball. He was even offered a contract from the Cincinnati Reds, but he turned it down because as he went through school, he decided he didn't want to play baseball or be an athlete, but he wanted to be an artist. And so he left Ohio State. He never graduated. He had, I think, a year left. And um, he decided to move to New York City uh, to become an artist. And he enrolled at the New York uh, School of Art, which is where Henry taught. So if you came into that school, you had a choice of the two great men who were dominant. Chase had actually founded the school, not Henry. So you could go with Chase, who was essentially an American Impressionist, uh, or you could go with Henry, who was a realist. Uh, and in the case of Bellows, there was no question he was going to work with with Henry. So he becomes uh, part of that uh, part of that group, and he takes Henry's thoughts and ideas and inspiration to heart. This is 42 Kids from 1907 great painting to have that you may know certainly from your days visiting the Corcoran. Um, this is a, a, a very uh, typical Ashcan school painting, uh, Henry sort of school painting, because of its subject matter. Its subject matter is very real, very intense, very almost documentary. It's quite upfront. It's a group of young boys, for the most part, it's all boys, who are swimming in the East River. Uh, and these are, of course, all the offspring of the working class immigrants who are living in the Lower East Side tenements now of New York City. So this is what um, uh, Bellows is painting. Uh, these would have especially been in those neighborhoods, Italian immigrants, Jewish immigrants, especially in, those, in that part of New York. Um, this painting shocked people. It had, it's interesting because some people love this painting and other people were shocked by it. They found it crude. Um, why do I want to see a picture of these uh, delinquents uh, who are only causing trouble? There was a lot of, uh, and this is going to sound very familiar, um, uh, there was a lot of anti-immigration sentiment at this time uh, directed towards the Italians, the Jews, and others who were coming into New York City. And so that actually is incorporated in the title of the painting. The title is 42 Kids. Now, today we use the word kids, it doesn't have any pejorative, you know, he's a kid. We don't, it doesn't really have any pejorative connotation. Um, but at this point in time, in 1907, in, in the yellow journalism of New York City, kids was used as pejorative. And it would refer to these kids, these children of immigrants, were referred to as kids, and kids was associated with being rats or vermin. Uh, the, other, the other term that was used in the newspaper was maggots. So they were associated with disease, and they were associated with uh, these aspects, sickness, illness. Um, so anybody seeing the title kids, 42 kids, would have read it in that pejorative way, that kids is something. That's not how Bellows intended it uh, at all. So one critic called the painting one of the most original and vivacious canvases that he had ever seen. So that was a very complimentary. And then others called it, uh, one guy called it, a tour de force of absurdity. Uh, and then challenged, in, he said there would be, quote, inexcusable errors in drawing and general proportions. But of course, what he's showing you here 
are these ungainly, they're adolescents. They're, their bodies haven't really sort of taken shape yet. They're still kind of awkward and ungainly, kind of thin. Uh, they're doing not always the best social things. This guy's urinating uh, here. Uh, they're smoking cigarettes. Um, uh, so they're down, and, and this is hardly, you know, a wonderful beach uh, <laughs> that they're swimming in. I mean, they're down in the East River. There's this sort of uh, pier, broken pier and planks that they're, that they're swimming in. And of course, this painting resonates immediately in American art history with Thomas Aikens. So this is Aikens' The Swimming Hole on the right from 1884. And of course, Aikens is pivotal to Bellows, uh, especially. He had a great admiration, and he was pivotal also to, to Henry. So the realism of Thomas Aikens and his ability and his, and his willingness to confront society with the nude figure, for example, especially nude males. This is Aikens swimming here. Um, uh, here, um, work, his working methods were controversial because he allowed both men and women to work from the nude model in his um, in his classes at the Pennsylvania Academy, and of course that's why he was dismissed because um, there was a whole controversy about that. Women were not supposed to look at the nude body. Um, <clears throat> so, but these two paintings have a great kind of um, kinship. I'm sure some of you saw the great Bellows show that we did uh, here several years ago, and uh, we had a wonderful wall that was devoted to the boxing pictures. So these are two that we own at the National Gallery. Only one is up. This one is up. This one's in storage. Uh, actually, I know this one I think we sent out for another exhibition somewhere. Club Night on the left, 1907, and both members of this club on the right from 1909. Uh, Bellows knew sports very well. Um, I mean, he, he knew all about sports. He knew, I mean, the rules, the regulations, how you play it, what's, how you sort of succeed. So he knew basketball, he knew baseball, especially. And he was very interested in, uh, in boxing as well. And he was something of an amateur boxer. Actually, one of the things that brought Bellows and Chester Dale together was the fact that they both liked boxing. Um, and when they met, they used to spar and talk boxing. And so when um, Dale became a very uh, strong supporter of Bellows and purchased a number of his arts, uh, his works that we have here at the, at the National Gallery. So there's a lot of subtext here. For the Ashcan School, of course, the paintings are always dealing with some aspect of society. There's something going on with society. And so here, just the, uh, the idea of boxing as a sport, which was illegal in New York at this time, um, it, it could not take place in public spaces or arenas. It had to take place in, in private um, uh, clubs. That's why we have the title here, both members of this club. And uh, of course, there were tremendous uh, inequalities. Um, uh, African-Americans weren't allowed to be in the clubs. They weren't allowed to be members of the club. But so many great boxers were African-American. So in order to get them to allow them to box at the club for an evening, they were given a membership for that evening. And then as soon as they were done, the membership <laughs> was taken away. So this boxer in both cases, well, no, not in that one here. This boxer, we know who it is, is Joe Gans. He's the great light heavyweight champion in, from Baltimore. Uh, lightweight, not, uh, yeah, lightweight champion from Baltimore. He'd been the champion for eight years. Um, so he was one of the great, if you study the history of boxing, his name is very prominent. And uh, Bellows had a great respect for him. 
And these fights were vicious because uh, they took place in private clubs. This was before the sport, it was illegal, and before the sport had rules that today we have. For example, today, if you knock down a boxer, your, your opponent, three times, the fight's over. Uh, if you knock down your opponent, you are not allowed to just stand over him. You have to go immediately to a neutral corner and give him a chance to get up from the mat. None of those rules were in place. So in this, these boxing matches, if you knock down your opponent, you could just stand over him and wait for him to try to get up and punch him back down. Uh, there was no neutral corner rule. You could knock down a boxer seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve 10, 12 times, and the referee wouldn't stop the fight. Um, so the, f the fighters became really bloodied. And that's what you see uh, Bello sort of showing here. This place, this so-called stag, stag was often the term for these places, is Tom Sharkey's Athletic Club, which was right across the street from Bellows Studio in New York City. So in the front would be the bar, the saloon, and then you'd go in, the, if you were a member, you'd be allowed to go into the back, and then you'd find this going on. Uh, it's a magnificent painting. I mean, the, the bloodiness of this uh, fighter here, in fact, there's a great feeling here that he's just about to go down. Uh, this knee is about to collapse. And you can sort of sense that in the next second, this guy's going down. His face is all bloody. He looks like a Rembrandt or a Heim Soutine carcass of meat um, uh, here. And then you look at this crowd, and the crowd is straight out of Goya. I mean, they're all shrieking, and there's a bloodlust, and it can't be too violent or too bloody for the crowd. So it's really quite a magnificent painting. This is Blue Morning, 1909. Uh, Bellows, as all the Ashcan school artists did, were he was obviously they were responding to the changing cityscape of New York, which was industrializing and creating magnificent buildings and skyscrapers and, and all of that. And this painting refers to the building of uh, Penn Railroad Station, Penn Station, which is going up here. This is the great excavation, the pit uh, here for the um, building of the station, which took place between 1906 and 1910. Again, if you came to, there are four paintings on this subject by Bellows. We have one, and then there are three others at three different museums. And if you came to our exhibition, that was the first time we brought all four together. So we had all four of the excavation pictures together when we did our Bellows exhibition. Um, of course, this was one of the greatest building projects in the history of American engineering and architecture not only above ground, but below ground, because they had to tunnel below the East and the Hudson Rivers for the trains to come in. Um, again, many of you, I've spoken about this painting on many occasions, and <laughs> you all know my thing about knocking down Penn Station. Uh, I'll get on my soapbox here, and, and this is one of the greatest tragedies in the history of American architecture when we decided to knock this building down uh, in 1963. It was a McKim, Mead, and White building and uh, today, when you go to Penn Station, it's, as I like to say, <laughs> it's like going into a urinal, um, <clears throat> which is under Madison Square Garden uh, today. Um, but see, I'll get started, and then we'll, uh, in any case, what's magnificent about this painting, it's called Blue Morning. It's sort of the atmospheric effects. And also, almost every Ashcan school artist, but especially Bellows and Sloan, those two in particular, were interested in leftist politics. They were essentially leftists. Um, later, Stuart Davis would be comparable. And they all 
did illustrations uh, for the great socialist journal at this time in New York City. It's called The Masses. Uh, so there are many scenes, many covers of this journal, this socialist journal, that have covers by Bellows or by Sloan. So their, their empathy for the worker, for the unions, for the workers, for the rise of unions, the working class is very powerful for these artists. And in this painting especially, these are all the workers here. And one of the things I always point out is this part of the painting right here. It's almost hard to see. It's so small, but it's it's sunlit. It's in the sun. It's backlit by the, the big pit here. And that's a guy with a hammer in his hand. Uh, and that's like right in the center of the painting. Um, and these guys are all anonymous. And it really is a painting about labor. It's a painting about the dignity of labor, the importance of work. These buildings don't just kind of throw themselves up you know, um, without any effort and without any, uh, uh, without the, the use of people as a labor force. This changing landscape is seen here, the lone tenement, 1909. If you have urban change, urban renewal, uh, not even renewal, but just new urban planning, you have urban dislocation. So this is a poignant painting as they're knocking down everything that needs to be knocked down to make way for the new Queensboro Bridge, which was being built at this time. So all these tenements, this whole area of town had to be knocked down. And this is the last guy they haven't gotten to yet, this little lone tenement here. You can see the bridge here crushing down already um, over the top, the roadway here is kind of pushing down. This is a magnificent painting in terms of structure. It's basically built on verticals, this vertical, the vertical of the trees, the mass of the boats, the tenement, the smokestack, and the pier. You just have this beautiful sort of vertical. This painting, a part of the painting is magnificent. And um, Bellows, is, you know, he's thought of as a realist and as an Ashcan school Henry student, but Bellows was really developing towards more and more abstraction. And that's one of the things that our exhibition, I thought, did a nice job at illustrating. Uh, so this passage here is just beautiful paint, <laughs> these big flat slabs of paint. Certainly Bellows was aware of Cezanne, uh, and so some of that relates here. This is a passage of the painting that an American, a younger American painter like Willem de Kooning would love. Um, if you just cut this out, it could be a de Kooning. Um, um, New York City, New York, 1911. Um, the cacophony of the city, the congestion of the city, the dynamism of the city, the craziness, remembering that the traffic light had not been invented yet. So you had these incredible traffic jams. Um, this is Madison Square, the intersection of Broadway and 23rd Street. It's where the trolleys used to turn around. Uh, but again, he's pulling in a lot of things from other locations. He's juxtaposing new modes of transportation with these old traditional modes, the, the, the building of the skyline. He's using billboards for the first time. I mean, pop artists are gonna look at uh, Bellows. He uses signage, advertising billboards um, in his uh, portrayal of the city, um, electric lights. All of this is sort of um, uh, part of the vocabulary. He said in 1915, a few years after this painting, he said, quote, I paint New York because I live in it and because the most essential thing for me to paint is the life about me, the things I feel today, 
and that are part of the life of today. So that could be a hallmark of Ashcan School Painters, a kind of motto. Again, beautiful paint handling here. He equates a lot, uh, well, I don't want to go down that road. I don't have time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, another classmate, uh, in fact, they were in the same class with uh, Henry. We had Bellows and Edward Hopper. Um, so this is a self-portrait of Hopper on the left. It's not in our collection, it's from the Whitney from 1925-30, and a photograph of Hopper on the right from 1937. Um, he's born in Nyack, uh, New York, but he dies in his studio in Washington Square in New York City. Uh, Hopper, of course, is so beloved today, and, and with, 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 with due uh, reason, because he's a magnificent painter, especially this idea of his kind of lonely, isolated, somewhat alienated feelings of these figures that don't seem to communicate, etc. Um, he goes to the New York School of Art. He's, he's there from 1903 to 1906. And he can't really decide, <laughs> Chase, Henry. So he studies with both. He puts in a year with Chase, and then he goes over to, to Robert Henry. Um, early on, he makes his living really not selling paintings, but selling engravings, uh, etchings, engravings, and some of his watercolors. We have two great um, hoppers, a groundswell on the left from 1939, and Cape Cod Evening on the right, also from 1939. So here we have it. This painting came to us from the Corcoran, so it's a nice addition now to our, uh, to our collection. Uh, Cape Cod Evening has all the standard hopper tropes, shall we say, and again, I've spoken about this in relationship to a lot of different, uh, to writers and other things, but um, you have this couple here, and uh, this painting was painted in uh, Truro, uh, in Cape Cod, in Massachusetts, and um, Hopper said about it, he leaves us, Hopper left very extensive notebooks. Uh, he did little drawings of his paintings, and they were especially extensive in terms of his prices. Uh, I sold this to so-and-so for this amount. And uh, we had a number of those in the big hopper show that we did here. We had those in a case. Uh, so he was very meticulous. Uh, actually, it was his wife who was even more meticulous uh, about tracking that. So he writes in one of his little notebooks about this painting. He says, it is no transcription of a place, but pieced together from sketches and mental impressions of things in the vicinity. The dry, blowing grass can be seen from my studio window in the late summer or autumn. In the woman, I attempted to get the broad, strong-jawed face and blonde hair of a Finnish type of, which there are many on the Cape. The man is a dark-haired Yankee. The dog is listening to something, probably a whippoorwill or some evening sound, because he's got his ears pricked up and he's hearing something. And in fact, we know from Hopper's wife that his original intention was to name this painting Whippoorwill, but then he changed it to Cape Cod Evening. So you have all of these, uh, this is the kind of painting, uh, I know this from personal experience, you put a child in front of, <laughs> and then say, okay, what's the story? <laughs> and see how they negotiate it. Um, husband, wife, who knows? Uh, uh, brother, sister, uh, they're not talking, they're not communicating. She's in a very closed post. She's pushed to the corner. She seems somewhat isolated. He's not paying attention to her. She has a closed pose. He has an open pose, but his open pose is not towards her. It's towards the dog. 
and he seems to be calling the dog, but the dog is not paying any attention to him. So she's not paying attention to him, he's not paying attention to her, and he's not paying attention to the dog, and the dog's not paying attention to the guy. Um, and he hears something, maybe, uh, his, certainly the way he's, he's painted here. Um, she stands, very monumental, but pushed into that corner. He sits uh, here. This locust tree forest back here uh, is starting to almost, it looks spooky. Um, and it's starting to even encroach. And then you find this motif, where he just breaks the edge of the architecture like this is a hand almost. <laughs> that piece of the branch is just breaking the edge, which is fraught with a kind of tension. This is all unkempt, this long grass. The house, of course, is, a, is very well maintained. So you get all of this kind of beautiful ambiguity. Um, and we could all come up with stories here about what we think is happening. That's the same with groundswell, which in terms of who's interacting with whom, uh, this woman reclining here who's looking at whom, here's the, the bell buoy here, the swell. Um, of course, there's a lot, uh, Bellows is indebted here to somebody like Winslow Homer and others, uh, but this fixation on the buoy, the title, the date of this painting is 1939, and without, again, I don't have the time to go through this deep iconographic analysis, but there is a great article written by Alexander Nemiroff, who was here not too long ago to give the, the Mellon lectures. It was published in 19, no, I'm sorry, 2008 uh, in American Art, the American Art Journal. And uh, he talks about this painting in the context of the coming of the Second World War, and that the buoy is almost a stand-in for the radio at the time, and for these broadcasts that were beginning to talk about the tension and the coming sort of, um, uh, uh, Second World War, which um, uh, Hopper was working on this painting from August to September of 1939, which is exactly when war broke out uh, in Europe. So there may be something certainly to that. It's an interesting article, so I, I recommend it to you. This is not in our collection on the right. That's a Hopper night windows. That's from MoMA, uh, but this is in our collection. And that's not Hopper, it's uh, John Sloan. So in the same room, here's John Sloan, who is an important part of the, um, of the Ashcan School, and Henry's uh, one of his great students. He's one who is particularly politically acute. He, he was an illustrator for a newspaper in Philadelphia. He did, he did cartoons, caricatures, but he had a really strong um, political sensibility. He was on the left. He contributed to the masses along with Hopper. And these artists very often like to show the city from some high up. This is the L here. This is the subway in New York City here. The title of this painting is The City from Greenwich Village, 1922. And I'm showing you Night Windows, Night Windows by Hopper from 28 for a similar reason. Because what these artists very often like to do was just get on the train and go past things. <laughs> Uh, and be voyeurs, you know, look down, look through windows. I've got a whole theory about this one, but I'm not going to share it with you. Uh, I've talked about it during the Hopper show. Um, there's a kind of cinematic movement from here to here to here. Uh, and in any case, um, so they are, they are wonderful uh, 
images of the city. But what's interesting is that it, this isn't, uh, they're not painted on site. I mean, they're painted from memory. So you might, they might do sketches, but then back in their studio, they're, full, they're, they're able to alter or change things. So once we get through the room devoted to Henry, we get into the room devoted to Stiglitz. So this is the Henry wall plaque again as you enter, but if you keep walking straight through that room, you'll end up, um, you know how much I like wall plaques, uh, <laughs> uh, with uh, Alfred Stiglitz and his uh, circle here. Um, Stiglitz, what this room, what this gallery juxtaposes are the two great points of view about American art at this time. Uh, the point of view that stressed Henry, Henry, what Henry stressed, realism, the city painting the here and the now, and doing it in a realistic, true way, versus Stiglitz, who will become the champion of modernism, of European abstraction, of introducing into American art these artists who were weird guys now that most Americans felt who the heck is this guy? And they're all weird. They got weird names, Archipenko and Brancusi uh, and all this kind of stuff. Um, so that's what you have in this uh, gallery, the juxtaposition of these two schools of thought, you might say. So Stiglitz is the champion of modern art, modernism, formalism. And through he, he opens up a gallery, I'm sure you know, Gallery 291, which was on Fifth Avenue. And that gallery runs between, is open from 1908 to 1917. Pivotal, pivotal period. And this becomes the place where American artists, if they haven't ever been to Europe, and most of them have not, can come and see European art. Because at the Stiglitz Gallery, you could see works by the Impressionists, by Rodin, by Matisse, by Picasso, by Brancusi, by all the leading uh, modernists. So here is uh, Henry on the left from 1907. And here is a self-portrait of Stiglitz on the right from 1911. Of course, Stieglitz is one of America's greatest. He's not just the gallery dealer and an empresario, but he's one of America's greatest photographers. This is a platinum print that we have at the National Gallery. We have a huge collection of Stieglitz. Um, so these guys are contemporary, but they represent really two different kinds of ways of, uh, of thinking. So here is Stiglitz uh, on the left. This is Winter on Fifth Avenue from 1893. It's a photograph, of course. It's a gelatin uh, print. Um, uh, it was taken in 1893. And originally, it was a horizontal photograph. And it's New York City uh, here, Fifth Avenue. But then he decided to crop it, as you see here and uh, reprint it as a photographeur. So this is 1897. He takes this image and then changes it to what you see there. Now, what is uh, important about Stieglitz in the history of photography is that he's, he's among the very first, certainly in America, to begin to develop the idea of artistic photography. In other words, aesthetic photography, not just documentary photography, not just documenting things, but thinking of the camera as a tool for creative <coughs> creative uh, effort. And um, so you'll see him play with tone and clarity, create atmospheric effects, the way he prints the image, et cetera, that is very, very uh, uh, aesthetic, you might say. He likes these images of winter, fog, um, all of that kind of uh, thing. And that's what you see uh, here, the effects of weather, light, 
clearly present here. But I think it's interesting to do this. Um, because here's Henry, and here's Stiglitz. So they're not that far apart here. Um, certainly the Henry from 1902, Henry comes after the photograph of Stiglitz, which is 1897. But it has a very similar, they have a very similar kind of feel. Now, we have to uh, pause for a moment to talk about the, the most important event, arguably, in, in early 20th century American art history, and that is the Armory Show that takes place in New York City in 1913. This is the poster for the Armory Show. It was at the Armory in New York City here, February to March. 1913. This is the entrance to Gallery A uh, of the show. Several years ago, I talked about this because 2013 was the 100th anniversary of the Armory show. So there were lots of commemorations and celebrations. Um, the, the technical title of the show is what you see here, International Exhibition of Modern Art, but everybody refers to it as the Armory show. Uh, it was a monumental exhibition. It showcased the works of the most radical European artists of the day, along with the more progressive American painters who were included. Stuart Davis was in the show and others. We've, I talked about Stuart Davis not too long ago. Uh, it also traveled. People don't realize the show traveled. It wasn't just in New York. It was in New York, and then it traveled to Chicago, and then it traveled to Boston. So it had a, a wide impact on artists. It. Uh, basically changed forever the aesthetic landscape of American art. It affected art historians, artists, critics, art institutions, museums, art schools. Uh, it had a huge uh, impact. This photograph here uh, is, as I said, the, uh, the entrance. There were a number of important artists in this show, none more so than Brancusi. Brancusi had five sculptures in the show. And interestingly enough, the American photographer Edward Steichen purchased one of his uh, sculptures from this show. And it's one that we have at the National Gallery. It's the Myostra, that little bird that has like the puffy belly. Um, here's the entrance. And here's another one of the exhibition spaces. This is the North End showing especially modernist sculptures. This table was all devoted to Brancusi. They called it the, the mobile table of Brancusi because all his sculptures were here. This was quite a um, shock, I guess, to a lot of Americans, the public and critics alike, and artists, so many artists. Um, so in talking about this table and this Madame Pogany here, which you see up here, um, one critic who wrote the, 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 the uh, journal Art Revolutionists of Today, that's interesting, <laughs> sounds like a very leftist journal, but in fact it's not. Art Revolutionists of Today in 1913, one critic writing about Brancusi and specifically about this bust of Madame Pogany, he said, uh, at the left of the picture, he was actually talking about this picture, at the left of the picture is a much discussed portrait bust of Madame Pogany, a dancer by Brancusi, this freak sculpture resembles nothing so much as an egg and has excited much derision and laughter. This is a plaster of the kiss that was in the show. This is the actual one that was in the show. 
that you see uh, there. This is a photograph from the Chicago Tribune, um, March 25th, 1913. Here's Madame Pogeny in that table that I was talking about uh, here. So he exhibits five pieces, um, Madame Pogeny, Muse, Sleeping Muse, and the kiss and a marble version of a torso of a young girl, which is this one here. And they're all installed together on this one single pedestal. Um, again, uh, one of the most famous derisive quotes about Madame Pogeny again was a critic who said that it looked like, quote, a hard boiled egg balanced on a cube of sugar. <laughs> Now, newspapers had a field day with this, cartoonists, and they really went to town. So here's Thomas Powers, uh, the cartoonist, the uh, art at the armory by Powers, futurist. <laughs> He's saying I'm a futurist. Uh, uh, art at the armory by Powers, futurist. Uh, so you see him making fun, bust of a gloom. He gives it eyes. And then this, this one, uh, dark painting called night and then he says good night uh and all the people who have to stand on their heads to make sense of an abstract painting uh things like that this is um from the new york american newspaper february 1913 22nd and alex sass s-a-s-s -S -S, who uh did this um uh, image called nobody who has been drinking is let in to see this show <laughs> because they were afraid if you went in and you were drunk you would the whole world would be swirling around because <laughs> of all this abstract stuff and you 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 might probably have a relapse especially if you were an alcoholic uh, so this is in the new york world february 17 1913. here's madame pogini um and here is a photograph of the stiglitz gallery uh, after this exhibition, Bran uh, Stiglitz gave Konstantin Brancusi his first solo exhibition in New York in 1914, and this is a photograph of the exhibition. So this is the interior of Stiglitz's gallery. It wasn't very big. Uh, the show was not curated by Stiglitz. He had Edward Steichen curate the show. Steichen had already purchased the Brancusi. Um, Steichen was the guy who also had to come to the, I, I, I really, <laughs> oh God. Uh, you know the famous story when the bur the the um, burden space the the metal one uh, the bronze one they wouldn't let it pass customs when it came in because they didn't think it was a work of art um, so Steichen had to go down to customs and sort of explain and then they they still wouldn't let it in because they thought it was something else that was trying to be brought into the country as a work of art and so when it finally was allowed in they had to give it some kind of declaration and they brought it in as kitchen utensils, <laughs> uh, under kitchen utensils. Uh, uh, and Steichen had to go negotiate. He said, I don't care what you call it. You know, somebody said, well, it looks like the propeller of an airplane, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so the first exhibition of Brancusi in America is here in 1914. And um, th certainly there were positive critics. It's not all ridicule. And one critic writing about the show at Stieglitz said, quote, uh, that Brancusi is, quote, just about the last word in suggestive art has been, suggestive art, <laughs> has been reached in the exhibition of bronzes, uh, marble, and wood by Constantine Brancusi. Interestingly enough, all, almost all the works in this exhibition were sold. 
So there was certainly a market already um, uh, at this time. So this is our room that you enter. Here's the room we were just in. Now you've walked in and turned around to look at the wall. On the opposite side of this wall would be the boxing pictures. So this is Alfred Stiglitz and his circle. And uh, here we have works by Arthur Dove, the moth dance. And uh, Moon on the right, Moth Dance is from 1929. Uh, Moon is from 1935 uh, here. Now, these are all the artists associated with Stiglitz. These are the American modernists who responded to the Armory show in a positive way. Uh, not everybody responded in a positive way. Uh, a lot of people thought it was European trash, and certainly the American regionalists, Grant Wood, people like that, had nothing, they wanted nothing to do with that stuff. Uh, but there were a whole host of American painters who were bowled over. They had never seen Matisse or Picasso or Brancusi or all these guys. And so you start seeing it reflected, especially in this move towards abstraction uh, in the works of these artists, these highly simplified compositions, often shown close up. They may still be in nature, subjects from nature, but they become highly abstract. Dove was very experimental. He experimented with a new kind of resin oil. It was oil but with a lot of high degree of resin. And then he mixed it with wax. So when you look at his paintings, they have a really interesting kind of um, uh, textural effect and light effect. Martin Hartley, Berlin Abstraction from 1914-1915 in Mount Katahdin, Maine from 1942. Now, it's interesting because Hartley had been to Europe. So unlike some Americans who didn't know anything about these Europeans, Hartley had been to Europe and he had lived in Berlin. Uh, and he was there from roughly 1914 to 1915. Uh, he fell in love with, uh, with a, a German soldier. Uh, so they were a couple. And this painting is filled with symbolism about his relationship with the man who was his, his love of his life who uh, was, was killed in the war. And everything here, the epaulets, the number, everything here, the checkerboard, he, everything here is a reference to this man who was the man that he, that he loved. Uh, his main name was Karl von Freiburg. He was a young German lieutenant who was killed in, in the First World War. So certainly Hartley knew modern European art. And in fact, he had been invited to Gertrude Stein's uh, salon, her apartment, and so he was pretty fluent uh, in that. He didn't need the armory show in that regard. Mount, oh, I'm sorry, Mount Katahdin, when he comes back to the States and he decides to settle up in Maine, in 1937, he settles in Bangor, Maine. What you see him, what you see happening in, in this case is now he starts to think about the great American tradition of landscape, you know, going back to the Hudson River School, church and coal and people like that. But of course, he's a, he's a modernist. <laughs> So he begins to create these beautifully abstracted views, especially of Mount Katahdin, which is Maine's highest mountain. Nobody was closer to Stiglitz <laughs> than George O'Keefe, since they were married. Um, and we have the Jack in the Pulpit series um, here. And this is an installation shot. Um, this is, uh, well, let me go ahead to this. Here's. On the left is Jack in the Pulpit number two, and then Jack in the Pulpit number four, and then number five. 
and the one at the end is number six from 1930. Um, she executed six paintings on this subject. I'm just showing you four here. And they were done up in Lake George at the, the house of her in-laws, Stiglitz's parents' house up in Lake George in New York. This theme, though, goes back, the Jack in the Pulpit goes way back in O'Keeffe's career when she was a young high school student taking art classes up in Wisconsin. She's from Wisconsin originally, and her teacher had sort of introduced her to flowers and especially to the Jack in the Pulpit as an incredibly beautiful flower to look at and study. She never forgot that. And that just kind of stayed as she, as she grew and became a mature artist, she kept coming back to that theme. Certainly other artists, photographers, Paul Strand, Steichen, were doing similar things where they really got close into something but nobody quite handled it the way that Georgia O'Keeffe did in these beautiful close-up gigantic views of the insides of flowers. Botanists love these paintings. They talk about all the different <laughs> parts, but they really are an important part of American modernist painting at this time within the Stiglitz circle. Now, somebody who's not part of Henry, nor is he part of Stiglitz, but he's now in this space and, and he's important, so we need to mention him. And we need to mention him in reference to a third cultural awakening in New York. You had the people around Henry, for sure. You had the people around Stiglitz, that's for sure. But if you went to Harlem in the 20s, then you're dealing with what we all know today as the Harlem Renaissance, this incredible period of African-American culture and this flowering of uh, African-American theater and music and dance and visual art and poetry and literature. So it was a great, I mean, depending on how you negotiated in New York, you could see and experience a lot of great things. And nothing is uh, better than the work of this man here, whose name is Aaron Douglas. And uh, we now have a wonderful work by Aaron Douglas that's actually now hanging in this area with Stiglitz. Technically, it doesn't fit necessarily as the Stiglitz circle, but it does within the chronology of New York at this time. And um, this is the great poet, uh, Harlem Renaissance poet, James Weldon Johnson. Uh, Johnson wrote one of the great uh, series of poems that you see here with this great typeface. Um, called God's, God's Trombones in 1927. It was a series of poems that uh, Johnson wrote. And then he looked for somebody to, uh, it was decided to illustrate the poems. So he looked for somebody who might be able to do that. Douglas was born in Topeka, Kansas, had gone to the University of Nebraska. At Lincoln, 25, he moves to New York City, becomes a real important part of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, James Weldon Johnson meets and hears about and sees some of Douglas's work, and so he asks him if he would be willing to illustrate this text, um, the full title of which is God's Trombone, Seven Sermons in Verse, uh, published in 1927. You can buy it today. This is what it looks like in paperback uh, right here. It's not uh, that big. So this was a great opportunity for Aaron Douglas because this book was quite well regarded. So here you see this, this text here, this edition is not from our library, this is from South Carolina Library, uh, but here it is. But this image uh, is from our, is from the Na National Gallery's library, and we have an edition of this book. 
So uh, this is the way the book looked. It had uh, titles for the poems, and then the poems, and then one image. And there were only eight in the, um, uh, in the book. So uh, as I said, this, you can go see this book in our library. Just ask the librarians. They'll bring it out for you. And you can sit and look at it uh, here. So the Judgment Day poem, and you can read a little bit of it here, brought out from Douglas one of the, the best images. It was very dramatic, this Judgment Day image. He shows this powerful Gabriel, angel Gabriel, this black angel Gabriel who sort of stands astride the earth. Uh, these beautiful concentric kinds of rings um, and circles and waves. You can almost feel the music and the sound of the instrument sort of being reverberated here. Uh, it's a magnificent image. So this is the illustration. So this is about, it's smaller than a sheet of notebook paper. I mean, you, you know, but for some reason then, and we're not quite sure why, uh, probably because the book was so popular, uh, Douglas decided to take the illustrations and do large pa paintings. And that's what we have. So this is the painting now that we have. Uh, Judgment Day, 1939. It's oil on tempered hardboard. And I'm just bringing back the poem over here. So we're not quite sure why he decided to do the series of paintings, but probably because, as I said, the poem was very popular. Uh, and he turned them into easel pictures here. These are tremendous amalgam of so much that was current in modernist thinking at the time. Uh, this interest in African art, African sculpture, especially African sculptural objects, which was certainly being well known. Certainly, Douglas is aware of cubism here, precisionism. They're beautifully sort of tight and precise. Uh, Egyptian fresco, wall painting, tomb painting here. Art Deco, they have a geometry that relates to Art Deco. Uh, and they're abstract as well. So they have just a beautiful energy and vitality, and they speak to all these different modernist interests that many people had. And he pulls it all together sort of in one, in one image. So we're very happy to have this now. I, I'm over time, but I'm going to just quickly uh, wrap up here. Um, Stuart Davis. And John Marin, Gray C over here. Stuart Mar uh, Davis's multiple views from 1918, a kind of precursor. If you saw the great Stuart Davis show, the way he would ultimately begin to bring in all these different images in a kind of mosaic, uh, sort of cubist almost kind of way. This painting, multiple views from 1918, is a kind of a tune-up, a forerunner to that way of working. Uh, he said about this picture um, in 1953, much later. He said, quote, multiple views was made out of things I had been painting recently and had in my mind. I had done that kind of composition before that time, composing things that you don't usually see at one time. I have done drawings. I have drawings done in that manner. So it's a cubist kind of pulling out things that you don't see necessarily in one view. Of course, Marin on the right, he is next to George O'Keefe. Um, He's beloved by Stiglitz. They become close friends. And the artist, the only artist who shows at 291 more than Marin is O'Keefe, because he's married to her. Uh, but Marin shows repeatedly at the uh, 291 gallery, and, and I'm going to come back to that relationship in a second. Um, 
He's especially noted for these views of Maine. This gray sea, 1938, is a painting up in Maine, the Maine coast. Um, he is, this is a great painting because it's all experimental. I mean, he, he puts the paint on here like five different ways, five different things. You've got different kinds of brush strokes, palette knife, thick. Then you got painting in reserve where he just lets the canvas come through. Um, it's really quite a beautiful painting, very dynamic kind of getting at the underlying forces of nature. Now, in reference to what I just said, once you pass through Henry and then you pass through the Stiglitz group, you're in that part of the gallery that rotates now, right? So it's never the same. So if you go right now, it's Stiglitz and Marin. Previously, it was this show called Works in America, Works on Paper, but currently, so this show closed, and these shows close quickly because their works on paper sensitive to light, so they don't stay up a long period of time. So this is the current exhibition that's up that brings together Alfred Stiglitz and John Marin. They met in 1909. They became really great friends, collaborators. And as I said, uh, next to George O'Keefe, he exhibits more than any other artist at 291. Here they are together. Of course, in this space now is one of the history of photography's greatest photographs, this one on the left. This is Stiglitz's The Steerage from 1907, and Stiglitz's photograph on the right of Two Towers in New York from 1911. Um, obviously, entire books have been written about this one photograph. And this is a pivotal photograph in the history of photography. It's considered one of the greatest photographs in all of photography. It's a photograph that in, introduces, especially for American photography, the idea of a photograph not being just a document of something, but having a formal modernist idea that in this case seems almost cubist, the way things are cut and cropped and these shapes. The story about this photograph is remarkable. Um, Stieglitz was on this uh, steamer that was going from New York to Bremen, Germany. And he saw the people in front uh, outside on the deck in the area that was known as the steerage. And he couldn't believe what he saw. He just saw it, but he didn't have his camera. <laughs> uh, so he ran back uh, to his stateroom and came back with his camera and then um, sort of framed it and took this photograph. But I don't believe he really was aware of what he had captured until he saw the neg, until he saw it, until he printed it. Um, he says here uh, about that moment, he says, I saw shapes related to each other. I saw a picture of shapes and underlying that the feeling I had about life. So then he goes and brings the camera, takes this picture, and then you realize that he's captured something that's quite uh, remarkable uh, because it's, it's, it's like a formalist painting. It's divided, it's fragmented, it, has, it takes you one way, then takes you back another way. It speaks to the surface of the photograph. It's not just a view of immigrants on a boat. It's not just a document. Um, Picasso realized it. When Picasso first saw this photograph, he said, quote, this photographer is working in the same spirit as I am. <laughs> he, he recognized it immediately, what was innovative from a formal point of view. Now, there are other images of steerage in this theme, and um, I don't think necessarily they affected uh, um, um, Steichen, uh, Stiglitz, but there's one that he may have known. This is by an Ashcan school painter, George Lukes. It's called In the Steerage. 
from 1900. Today it's in North Carolina, at the North Carolina Museum of Art. So this subject of the immigrants, of the boat, of uh, coming over on the steamers, looks, captures it here. He's a member of Henry's circle, of course. So you see these things kind of bleeding together, these artists and these subjects. Of course, I'm showing you the great painting by George Bellows, Cliff Dwellers from 1913, that's in Los Angeles. Um, so this whole idea of the experience of the immigrant, of the melting pot of New York and all of that is relevant here. And then in that room that I'm talking about, <clears throat> where you have Stiglitz, you also have Marin. And so this is, uh, these are his images. This one is Deer Isle, Maine, and this is Taos, Storm Over Taos, 1930. Uh, he spent time in both of these places, but most especially in, in Maine, and did some of these remarkable watercolors. The thing he was most known for were his watercolors, but he's a wonderful painter in oil, but his watercolors still are considered among the greatest watercolors in the Western tradition, not just in America. So that takes us through the ground level, <laughs> uh, the two galleries we have created as sort of transition galleries. And what we'll start with on Thursday is to go up one flight to the mezzanine and start to look at modern art, going through early Picasso, Fauvism, Cubism, that area where you're supposed to really start the story of the 20th century. Thanks, everybody. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.